All right, we are recording. Um, well, let's start with this. So if you would introduce yourself and what your, your job was uh, while you worked in the railroad industry. My name is Stephanie Griffin. I worked for Union Pacific Railroad from 2015 until 2020, and I worked as a car man. It was my job to inspect the cars for any damage, any broken parts, repair them if I could, if not, send it to the shop. And I was also responsible for ensuring that the air brakes worked on a set of cars before they left the yard. That sounds like a very important job. <sighs> Depending on who you asked, um, I obviously took my job very seriously and felt that it was very important. Um, however, I did have uh, foremen and managers who did not think the same. This is Derailment Disaster, Crisis in East Palestine. Kevin Landers, Channel 10. When you say you're going to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, can you detail exactly what that means? It's just a general statement. We're going to make sure that they fulfill their duty. That's Ohio Governor Mike DeWine speaking to reporters in Columbus, Ohio, at a press conference on February 17th, just two weeks after the derailment in East Palestine. Uh, you know, they, they caused this problem. East Palestine was visited yesterday by our two United States senators. I think it's time for U.S. Congress to take a look at rail safety. In our previous episode, we made a point to highlight the confusion and questionable decisions made in the first few days following the derailment, including the decision to ignite not one, but five rail cars full of vinyl chloride that filled the sky over multiple counties in Ohio and Pennsylvania with toxic fumes and particles. We'll continue to explore that decision, the rail industry's power over our government and our economy, and the extremely difficult, if not impossible, task of holding responsible parties to account. And while we continue to wait for the National Transportation and Safety Board's findings as to what directly led to the incident. My name is Jennifer Hammondy, and I'm the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. What we do know is that it was preventable. What are we investigating that's preventable? pretty much everything about this accident. It's everything from the wheel bearing, to the rail cars, to the tank cars, to the actions of uh, federal entities or inaction of federal entities. And we'll look at Norfolk Southern, their policies. Stephanie Griffin, whom you heard at the beginning of this episode, I had a lot of anger, is one of a handful of former and current rail industry workers over the pushback I was receiving when I was just trying to do 
my job. Who saw what happened in East Palestine. I'm not surprised and I was not surprised that it happened. Um, if anything, I was more surprised that it took this long for it to happen. And decided to speak up. And that anger is what has fueled me to this day, to getting my story out, to let people know that there are people like me who are trying to fight a system that is stacked against them to where our very livelihoods are threatened if we rock the boat just a little too much. As a carman, Stephanie's job was to maintain rail cars and their track worthiness. Bad ordering is uh, what we say when we find a defect on a car that we are not able to fix out in the yard. A bad order is typically something that the FRA or the Federal Railroad Administration has deemed unsafe and has to be repaired before that car can continue on to its next destination. These little paper tags that we put on the car, we filled out with our name, the type of defect that we found and the date and we sent it on its way. And those tags were bright orange and on the top said in big bold letters, bad order. You're doing this process according to government regulations. What you're telling me is your supervision or people from other departments that were handed this after you would bad order a car, that they would disregard basically what your findings were. Is that correct? They were, they were disregarding these regulations. Yes, that is correct. Stephanie began documenting her interactions with supervisors and even decided to record one of them. As much as I'd like to share those recordings here, out of caution, we won't. But what I can tell you from listening to them, I'm left shaking my head at the absolutely neglectful actions of Stephanie's supervisor, who nonchalantly dismissed her concerns as he interrupted and talked over her. It's like hot potato. Basically, yes. It's You're just hoping and praying that this one issue isn't bad enough this one time and it'll make it. In one clip, Stephanie's supervisor asks if she's worried about getting in trouble if she doesn't bad order cars that need repair. He cites others who aren't bad ordering stuff out there, as he puts it. There were times where I was incorrect and they were able to show me. I obviously take no issue with that. But there are some very obvious cases where I knew and could point to the regulation stating that this car is bad and they would be like, no, it's not. So here's what, here's how I interpret it. And because I have more power over you and I'm a manager, I'm going to let this one go. Okay. In another clip, Stephanie references Rule 90 of the American Association of Railroads Field Book or AAR book. Rule 90 states that trucks, specifically the side rails, older than 50 years are prohibited at interchange. Trucks are the framework that rail cars sit on that are attached to the axles and wheels. Interchange simply refers to the process of switching rail cars between different companies or networks. Her supervisor replies, oh, I've read it. There's a lot of stuff in that AAR book. And it wasn't just me who had this issue. It was the people that I was working with were telling similar stories. Yeah, I tried to bad order this car, but they let it go. Yeah, I tried to fix this, but they said it wasn't an issue. Yeah, I pointed this out, but they just wanted it to roll. And when I say roll, it means they wanted the, the train to leave. Her supervisor continues, the 50-year-old trucks, there's nothing we can really do about that. He goes on to say they'd have to hold the cars for parts that they don't have. You know, it was bad enough to federally say, yes, this car needs to be pulled out, but it's such a headache that we're just going to send it with hopes and prayers and hope that it makes it to a destination. And then it's somebody else's problem. 
Finally, Stephanie's supervisor explains that this shuts other customers' cars down and then says, quote, do you know what we do when we get them up here? We kick them out. Stephanie's revelations about AAR field manual noncompliance underscore serious safety concerns in the rail industry. In 1980, there were nearly 40 Class 1 rail companies in the U.S. Thanks to the Staggers Rail Act of 1980, deregulation led to significant consolidation, leaving just seven major Class 1 railroads in control. Consolidation has been accompanied by a dramatic reduction in workforce, with only around 135,000 employees in 2021. The combination of these factors and the alleged disregard for safety rules as outlined create a potentially dangerous environment. Further, as global oil dependency decreases, the oil industry is increasingly focusing on plastic production. This shift has led to a rise in the transportation of vinyl chloride, a key ingredient in PVC plastics. This increase in vinyl chloride transport clearly poses safety and environmental risks, emphasizing the need for stringent regulations, safe handling procedures, and robust oversight to protect communities and the environment from potential hazards associated with this toxic material. But as I continue to be told, unrelenting advocacy gives us our only real shot at forcing meaningful change. Uh, something, something's very, very wrong here. You see what's happened after the train wreck, and you think, what? You know, the law doesn't require them to notify the state of Ohio or anybody that this is coming through our state from one end of the state to the other. This is crazy. The law has to be changed in this area. We've also seen other train derailments in the state of Ohio. We've seen them across the country. You know, when it's a train derailment and, and it's just an empty boxcar, I guess that's one thing. But, you know, many of these trains are carrying some very, very dangerous products. You know, the great thing about the NTSB for this, finally, that, that they came out and said this was 100% preventable. I'm glad someone finally said that because it's true. <laughs> we can prevent this. I've been saying this for years. Justin McCulka is a journalist and author specializing in environmental and energy-related topics with a particular emphasis on crude oil transportation by rail and its associated risks. I would say that uh, both the rail and oil industry and their lobbyists are exceptionally worthy opponents, but they're excellent at uh, misleading the public uh, and getting what they want. He's contributed to multiple publications, including DSmog Blog, where his investigative work has shed light on the dangers and regulatory failures in the industry. It's amazing more of this doesn't happen. Um, because they, they, the culture is to basically ignore safety. McCulka is also the author of Bomb Trains, How Industry Greed and Regulatory Failure Put the Public at Risk, a book that delves into the hazards of transporting volatile crude oil across North America. Less than two months following the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, multiple Senate committees held hearings on the matter. At these hearings, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown touted his new bipartisan rail safety bill with Ohio Senator J.D. Vance. For decades, the railroads have lobbied to undermine safety rules. They're still at it even now after what they've done to this Ohio town, even with the eyes of the country on them, Madam Chair. Senator Brown didn't mince words and echoed much of what Justin told me about the industry. That's the nature of what we're dealing with, is a, a regulatory system that protects corporate profits. 
Norfolk Southern followed the Wall Street business model, boosts profits in its stock price by eliminating over the last decade, 38% of its workforce. These profits were spent on stock buybacks that benefit executives instead of investing in workers and investing in safety. And the sacrifice zones like East Palestine, it's a cost of doing business. Instead, they compromise safety, cut costs to boost profits. The communities along their route be damned. I've talked to retired train engineers, you know, guys who operated them, and they talked about how these trains keep getting longer. The tracks weren't designed for that. The railroads are committed to safety. They say they're making changes. They claim the train that, that went off the tracks in East Palestine was 149 cars. They've cut the amount of time their carmen are given to inspect each rail car to less than a minute. Finally, the railroads are fighting the most basic of all requirements, having two crew members in a train. If you, if you ask 50 people outside anywhere, how many people you think work on those trains that are 200 cars long or, that, or two or three miles long? You'd hear people say five, 10, 20. The railroads want only one person. That's frankly crazy. If Norfolk Southern had paid a little more attention to safety and a little less attention to its profits, it cared a little more about the Ohioans along its tracks and a little less about its executives and shareholders, these accidents would not have been as bad or maybe not happened at all. Brown and Vance's Rail Safety Act focuses on increasing safety and accountability for trains carrying hazardous materials like vinyl chloride. Earlier this month, Norfolk Southern issued a six-point plan of modest safety improvements. The bill requires carriers to inform state and emergency response officials about their cargo. We don't need a voluntary plan. We need uh, the Brown-Vance bill. Additionally, the bill mitigates derailment risks by limiting train size and weight. It also addresses rail car inspections, ensuring all rail cars on trains carrying hazardous materials are inspected regularly. Wheel bearing failures pose a significant risk to rail safety, and to reduce that risk, there will be requirements for added detectors along the tracks. Another critical component of the act is the requirement for two-person crews aboard every train. To hold rail carriers accountable, the act will increase fines and the maximum penalty the U.S. Department of Transportation can issue for safety violations. The act also supports communities impacted by rail disasters, expanding hazmat training grants for local law enforcement and first responders. Lastly, the Railway Safety Act of 2023 will invest in future safety improvements by allocating $22 million to the Federal Railroad Administration for research and development grants. It will also provide $5 million to the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration for developing more robust tank car safety features. Senator Vance and I are both here today to urge this committee to embrace the obvious need for safety reform. It shouldn't take a train derailment for elected officials to put partisanship aside and work together for the people whom we serve, not corporations like Norfolk Southern. Our bill is a common sense bipartisan plan. We need safety rules. We need the Railway Safety Act. Now we wait and see if Congress will pass the bill. These senators, they, they ask tough questions. I was impressed from both sides, Republican and Democrats, but they said, will you commit here today to not buy back more stock? Give money to your investors before you invest in safety. And uh, CEO Alan Shaw of Norfolk Southern would not commit. Will you commit to compensating effective 
homeowners while they diminish property values. Senator, pardon me, Senator, I'm committing to do what's right. Well, what's right is a family that had a home worth $100,000 that is now worth $50,000 will probably never be able to sell that home for $100,000 again. Will you compensate that family for that loss? Five times during that hearing, he said, I'm committed to doing the right thing. Senator, I'm committed to do what's right. The last time he said it, I think it was Senator Mark, he said, that is the right thing. You have to make these people whole. You did this. Senator, I'm committed to doing what's right for the community, and we're going to be there. As no, what, what's right for the community will then be balanced, which is what we can see from your stock buybacks by what's right for Norfolk Southern. And that's going to be to sue, to fight, to resist full compensation for these families. That's the pattern we've seen over the last 10 years in your one-third reduction in workforce. We're not hearing the right things today. That's why we're going to stay on this case. The coverage of this rail hearing, so far, all I've seen was like a quote, I, and I haven't looked at everything, but a, an article and the quote was, CEO Alan Shaw says he's committed to safety. That was not the takeaway of that hearing, <laughs> but that's what people are reading. The events of the last month are not who we are as a company. We are a safe railroad. Senator, I'm committed to improving the safety culture at Norfolk Southern. We're also going to make our safety culture the best in the industry. Uh, next, uh, Senator Whitehouse, I think you are uh, recognized for questions. Great. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Shaw, the news is reporting that there's just been a significant derailment in Alabama of one of your trains. I certainly hope that all of your team and the anybody in the vicinity um, is safe and well. Um, you may need to look into that. Getting a job with Union Pacific was my ticket out of poverty. And I was so thankful and so excited and frankly, so relieved that I was going to be working a steady union job where I had some measure of protections. And I was going to be able to lift my family out of poverty. And I was willing to sacrifice a lot for that. I sacrificed everything because when I started, I felt that it was worth it. And when I started, I felt like I had the power to make my community safer because what we are working with is some really dangerous stuff. I mean, you guys know that, unfortunately, firsthand. The language that was used when I first hired on was that we were sort of the last line of defense. It was up to us to make sure that these trains were safe. And I did feel a deep sense of pride in my work. I'm the one making sure that everything is okay. I have the power to stop this train and potentially stop a catastrophe. But as I started working more and I grew more confident in my ability to interpret the rules, to inspect cars, to, to call out bad order cars, I started getting more pushback. I'm doing too much. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing, as you heard in that audio. Uh, maybe you're just interpreting it the wrong way. A lot of gaslighting, a lot of questions about my ability. And therefore, while I did start to question it, am I really doing this wrong? Am I doing too much? But then I just remember that it was my job to make sure that even if I was wrong, and even if this car was perfectly fine, 
at least you would have multiple eyes on it. And I think that that was a big part of me continuing to fight back as I did have people who would either confirm my suspicions or confirm what I was feeling, sort of validate those feelings, or they would push back with me. And that was very empowering. I would rather that car sit for a day or two or maybe even a week and for it to be fine than to have it go out there and potentially kill somebody because it was derailed. Disaster, Crisis in East Palestine is a Calliope Media production. Trust Calliope.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-O-P-E. If you feel moved to do so, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Special thanks to Benstown McVeigh Media.